0: The Rock is Lit Vault.
1: Welcome to the Rock is Lit Vault, where you can find outtakes from the regular episodes and extended episodes, as well as special features, behind the scenes peaks, and breaking news. Join me, Christy Alexander Hallberg, for each enthralling episode, then migrate to the Vault for Rock is Lit Deep Cuts. Episode 14 of Rock is Lit features Michael Amos Cody's novel Gabriel's Songbook a story that follows starry-eyed Gabriel Tanner on his quest to strike it big as a singer-songwriter in Nashville in the 1980s. In the final segment of that episode, Peter Cooper and Fry Gailyard join me to talk about the real Nashville music scene in the 1980s. Fry is in the story and an author of such books as A Hard Rain, America in the 1960s, The Southernization of America, which he co-wrote with Pulitzer Prize winner Cynthia Tucker, and Watermelon Wine, The Spirit of Country Music. On a sad note, The morning episode 14 first aired, I received a message from Fry Gale giving me the tragic news that Peter Cooper had passed away just two days prior, on Tuesday, December 6, 2022. Peter Cooper was the Country Music Hall of Fame and Museum's senior director, producer, and writer. As one of Nashville's most respected music journalists, he wrote for the Tennessean, American Songwriter, Esquire, and numerous other publications. His insight was deepened by his experiences as a Grammy nominated producer, a singer, a songwriter, and a touring musician. His songs were recorded by luminaries, including John Prine, Todd Snyder, and Country Music Hall of Fame members Bobby Baer and Mac Wiseman. Country Music Hall of Fame member Chris Kristofferson said Peter Cooper looks at the world with an artist's eye and a human heart and soul. What you're about to hear is the full interview I recorded with Fry Galliard and Peter Cooper on Tuesday, October 18, 2022, less than two months before Peter's death. I offer it to you now as a tribute to Peter, in honor of his life and in gratitude for the insight he and Fry brought to episode 14 of Rock is Lit about Michael Amos Cody's novel Gabriel's Songbook, a book Peter so enjoyed. I wish all of Peter's friends and family peace and healing. And now... Here is my conversation with Fry Gailyard and Peter Cooper. Welcome to the podcast, Fry and Peter. Thank you so much for being here.
2: Thanks, Chris. Thank you.
1: So, the focus of this episode is Michael Amos Cody's novel, Gabriel's Songbook, which follows the character Gabriel Tanner on his quest to strike it big as a singer songwriter in Nashville in the 1980s. I think to fully appreciate all the changes taking place in Nashville in the 1980s, let's go back to the 1970s first. Fry, your book, Watermelon Wine, deals primarily with Nashville and country music in the 70s. So what was the country music scene like during that decade and who were some of the major stars?
2: You know, um, Guy Clark, one of the great songwriters uh, to come to Nashville in the the 1970s um, compared it once to being in Paris in the days of Ernest Hemingway. Oh, wow. Uh, it was uh, for some of those guys and, and women too, um, you know, that it was art for art's sake. Yeah. Uh, that wasn't true for everybody, but it was for, for Guy Clark or Jessica Winchester or Towns Van Zandt tom t hall though he was on the country charts he was primarily a storyteller who just mm-hmm. uh, you know told his stories through music that was the uh, the way it was in nashville in those days and you know it was exciting to write about it and you could feel the other tension of commercialization sort of building as well and so it wasn't nirvana but it was um, it was a great time i remember a song that a friend of mine named Vince Matthews wrote uh, that Gordon Lightfoot later recorded it was uh, it was called On Susan's Floor and it was about how songwriters like himself just crashed on the floor of this woman that they knew who was generous enough to put a roof over their heads mm. so they could go out and ply their trades that was just kind of the spirit of Nashville in those days
1: mhm when i think of country music in the 70s i think of outlaw country think of people like Waylon Jennings and and Hank Williams Jr. and Johnny Cash, uh, Willie uh, Nelson, and that that whole crowd, and the urban cowboy scene—that's what immediately comes to mind for me.
2: Yeah, and it was uh, that for sure. That was part of it as well. And and um, you know, those people were um, were were doggedly creative and also and determined to control their own art. And they sometimes fought with the moguls of the music industry for their own creative independence. And then on the women's side of the issue, uh, of, the, of the scene, you had Loretta Lynn, you mm-hmm. had Martin, you had Emmylou Harris, Linda Ronstadt was in and out of town. So again, uh, you just had some, some, in my opinion, really great stuff on the country music charts as well as in the uh, little clubs that dotted the landscape around town.
1: Yeah, and there was the, the rise of Southern rock and country rock. So that, you know, all of these different kind of branches of rock and country were sort of coming together during that time. Absolutely. David D. Bumgarner, who is director of the creative writing minor at East Tennessee State University, called Gabriel's Songbook the best novel of the music business he's read in a long time. Peter, you wrote a new introduction to the reissue of Watermelon Wine that updates the book's themes. Can you bridge the gap between Nashville and country music of the '70s and '80s? I mean, what were some of the differences in not only the music but also the music business?
3: There were some gaps, but uh, in, in a lot of ways, the the '1980s. Um, I don't know. There, there was there was a lot of great country music there in the '80s, and that's uh, I, I was a uh, high school kid uh, listening to. Nashville music and uh, uh, Emmylou Harris, who Fry uh, mentioned, w- was uh, somebody who who made popular albums in the in the seventies and in the eighties, and se- seemed to connect all of these um, worlds. The eighties were, uh, for a time, a really down period commercially for country music, uh, and then there came in the, in the mid-'80s what um, uh, Steve Earle called the, the Great Credibility Scare, <laughs> which was, which was um, critically acclaimed uh, artists getting signed to major record label deals, people like Nancy Griffith, Steve Earle, uh, Lyle Lovett, um, People uh Roseanne Cash, Rodney Crowell, people who fused folk traditions uh, and country music and uh, were great uh, storytelling singer songwriters uh, the eighties was also when the video world seemed to open up for country music. There were a couple of dedicated country music cable video channels that was uh, that Gave fans the opportunity to kind of uh, to feel like they knew these musicians, Uh, you know, they they got another window uh, into them.
1: Speaking of these music channels, these music video channels, MTV debuted in August of 1981 and then CMT launched in March of 1983. So it, it really it really was from the beginning of the 80s onward that video and these music channels began to become so popular. How do you see that as impacting the people who were stars in the 70s? Could they cross over?
3: I think a lot of them did cross over. There was also a station called uh, TNN, the National Network, uh, that, that was a, a big deal. And these stations were much more music substantive uh, than Tends to be the deal today. Uh, you, you would have some in depth interviews. There were live shows from Opryland. People like uh, Ralph Emery had a nightly show uh, that would have stars of the day, legends of country music, uh, and upstarts often on the same show. I, I, I remember um, actually going to a show, uh, a Ralph Emery hosted show. Uh, that featured uh, Porter Wagner, who was a, a great legend of country music and is now in the Country Music Hall of Fame, and Tim O'Brien, who was a bluegrass wizard and uh, just a, a wonderful, wonderful musician who was not necessarily a name you know was was not featured on the country charts other than as a songwriter. There exists the notion that TV made image more important uh, in country music. And I, I'm not sure that that's correct. I, I think image has always been important in country music, just the, the outfits. It's always been about the song, but also more than that, about the about the singer of the song and the relatability of that singer we want our singers to relate to us (laughs) and also to dress better than we do
1: (laughs) (laughs) in the novel when the character gabriel goes to nashville it is the 1980s it's on the cusp of that change with mtv and cmt and and all of that and every music executive he encounters wants to change him they they were looking for a certain image that he didn't have. And I'm hearing you say that image has always been important in the music business. But do you think there was a certain kind of image that executives were looking for in their artists in the 80s that was a little bit different from prior decades? I
3: think there was a flailing away uh, in the 80s among executives uh, trying to figure out what would work and how it would work. Um Certainly the uh, video era made people, uh, made record executives want to sign people who were, I don't know, like in shape. (laughs) And uh, country musicians started to look like athletes in in some cases. Uh, Mm Randy Travis was a workout hound, but also a tradition-based artist who sang Songs that could have been sung in the 1950s or, or 60s. I don't think any of this is particular to country music. I think it's it's the way the industry worked and and the way the world works. Um, I I don't think that it necessarily came as a detriment to the music. I think radio changed in the 90s uh, and and became a, a, a with the Telecommunications Act of uh, 1996. Playlists were um, what you would listen to on a country station in Cleveland was a lot like what you would listen to it was in fact the same as uh, what you would hear on a country station in Spartanburg, South Carolina. There was a homogeneity uh, that set in, but that that was really the the nineties. I, I think it's important that we. Well, I don't know if it's important, but uh, uh, I'm interested in country music as a uh, a kind of arms expanded genre, uh, not as a limited radio format. I can hear remarkable country music any night of the week here in, in Nashville. It may not be from people who are featured on country radio station Uh, and sometimes it is one of the best pure country singers i've ever heard is a guy named uh john bird who fry knows he plays little clubs on on weeknights and you you won't hear a better country music uh show than john bird now he's not going to be featured on your uh, commercial top 40 country station, Mm -hmm. but he is for sure a country musician. And I I think that the character Gabriel in this book is working between these worlds, trying to find a way to uh, popular success while also retaining his artistic vision. And those, those things are definitely hard to combine
1: that that's the age old problem with the music and, industry in general.
3: Well, yeah, and we've spoken about Emmy Lou Harris uh, a little bit and um Fry has done some remarkable writing on Emmy Lou who's just the absolute godmother of what we now call Americana. Yes. music, but it was in the 80s she was she had gone from being a CMA female vocalist of the year a popular country radio artist to being told essentially that she was put out to commercial um, master. And her reaction to that was not one of anger or bitterness. Uh, Her reaction to that was, well, now I can do whatever I want to do. Uh, (laughs) And, (laughs) and she embarked on kind of a second career uh, beginning with this wrecking ball album, (laughs) Uh, that is not to be confused with Miley Cyrus. Uh, <laughs> <and ball. laughs> but, um, no way. <laughs> but she just took that as license to do what she wanted to do. And there was still an audience there for that. It was not the audience that was listening to um, top 40 country radio.
1: Right. Um, so uh,
3: uh, again, there's a difference between genre and and format.
1: Yes. Well, Fry. I know that this is a bit of a deviation, but let's let's stay with Amy Lou for a minute, because I really like the work that she did with Graham Parsons in the early 70s a- until he died in what, 73, 72, 73, something like that. Yeah. Can, can you talk a little bit about their union and, and the work that they did and how she kind of bridged the gap from working with him to going solo?
2: You know, she um, she was uh, playing little um folk music clubs when she met Graham Parsons. I think she told me in an interview that I did with her in the 1990s that they met at a little folk club in Washington, D.C. called Clyde's. Mm. She was playing there, and Graham came in to hear her, and in the break between sets, they went down to the basement and sat down on on a couple of different kegs of beer, and uh, (laughs) And started playing songs for each other and just sort of musically they just found each found the other soulmate and Mm -hmm. they they did those amazing albums that you were talking about and you know when graham parsons died it it uh it broke emmy lou's heart and Mm -hmm. uh, she wrote uh, boulder birmingham about him which is one of the uh great songs in my view in the history of country music it was on her First solo album, uh, and um, so you know she was a she was an amazing force who who came into her own in the nineteen seventies. I think continued to thrive in the nineteen eighties, but by the nineties, uh, as Peter said, she was no longer on the on the country charts, and she just didn't care. She just went on about. In addition to her wrecking ball album, she did a live album from the old Ryman Auditorium and helped. Resurrected as a music venue, so you know just an amazing person uh, almost she's almost like a music historian as well yeah. as a great songwriter and unbelievable singer. One other thing I was going to add to what Peter was saying in my view, from looking down from ten thousand feet, it seems like Gabriel, the character in that fine in the fine novel that you're talking about got to Nashville in, in a sort of bridge decade between the the 70s that I consider a really golden age for creativity and the 90s when the pressures to be more cookie cutter and conforming, at least on radio, had taken root. And I think that was beginning to affect songwriters in the 1980s and, and that tension between art uh, and stardom, which is always a, a tension, performers struggle with. That I think that began to become more acute in the 1980s. Some people handled that tension really well and really easily. Amy Lou being one, Dolly Parton being another. But but some songwriters that I knew during that time really did struggle with it, like like Gabriel did.
1: Yeah. And then there's Johnny Cash, for goodness' sakes, who who goes back to the 50s and 60s and and lasted until his death and inspired these new songwriters and new ideas all all into the 90s and early 2000s. What was it about Johnny Cash that made him the icon that he became?
2: You know, one of the things about Johnny Cash that uh, that was always so important was that he he had a very deep social conscience. I mm-hmm. think. Uh, in 1964, he had a uh, top five country hit uh, called The Ballad of Ira Hayes, mm-hmm. written by a Native American songwriter named Peter LaFarge. And that song about the, the struggles of an American Indian who had been a, a war hero in World War II, a true story, um, you know, it it made the top of the country charts because of the force of Johnny Cash's belief in those kinds of things and the distinctiveness of his voice and Mm -hmm. just his overall presence. But that identification with people on the margins was one of the things that uh, was at the heart of Johnny Cash's greatness, I think. Late in the 1960s, uh, when the country as a whole, the nation as a whole, uh, seemed divided politically and even musically, um, Johnny Cash, with his television show, set out deliberately to put the pieces back together. So i would have on that show Bob Dylan, but he would have Merle Haggard as yep. well. And, um, and so that's the kind of role that Johnny Cash tried to, tried to play, I think. I did uh, a couple <laughs> of interviews with him, which I considered a singular honor. He had this presence about him. He, he wasn't arrogant, but as one of his band members said, he knew who he was. But there was also in those conversations a thoughtfulness and a, um, and a and a kindness that made a lasting impression on me. And I think it did for a lot of fans. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of stories about Johnny Cash seeing a busload of tourists pull up in front of his house, and sometimes he would go down there and just talk to them. And and um, you know, there was just a kind of accessibility and availability. Uh, by one of the biggest stars in the history of country music, really, of any kind of music.
3: Yeah. Yeah. John, Johnny Cash was was present mm. in conversation. He cared about who he was talking to, and he realized, as Fry said, he, he knew who he was, but he also took care to know who the person he was speaking with was. He, mm-hmm. he along with Chris Christopherson, th- those are the two most charismatic People I've ever been around. Um, wow. If we were in a room facing one way, and Johnny Cash walked into the room through a back door, the nature of the room would <laughs> change. We'd be something's <laughs> different here And we wow. would turn around to see that, that Johnny
1: Cash was there. Those folks don't come and, along very often.
3: No. Also, I, I would note. Um, Uh, Fry was talking about how Merle Haggard would be on Cash's uh, show, along with progressive, liberal-minded folk singers. Sometimes country music is, um, I I believe, mischaracterized as a conservative
1: genre.
3: Um, I agree, Peter, I agree. You know, at the same time, Johnny Cash had a song uh, called What is Truth?, That Mm -hmm. was supporting people who young people who were in opposition to the Vietnam War at the same time that Merle Haggard had a hit song that said, uh, when you're running down this country, man, you're walking on the fight inside of me. Mm -hmm. And those guys were best friends and uh, and they were both wise people. And and, um, uh, Merle's politics changed a good bit over the years. It's odd to me that country music in the 1960s and 70s was a place where disparate political thoughts and, and thoughts about social movements could coexist. Um, and today that has not seemed to, uh, to be the case. Until fairly recently, there are, more, there are more sort of liberal voices speaking out lately in country music. Jason Isbell's maybe the greatest songwriter of, of his generation, certainly. So, I he's not featured on country radio, but he exists squarely in the, in the squarely sounds like he's not cool or something. That's not <laughs> what I mean by squarely. But, uh, but he uh, exists within the uh, country music tradition, for sure. Um, Maren Morris, Casey Musgraves. Um, mm mm-hmm.
1: um,
3: it's more of a battle now, it seems, than it was in Cash's and Haggard's day. Th- those guys weren't that, uh, you know, they might think different things at the same time, uh, yeah. but they didn't hold it against each other. Right. And yeah. I'm not sure what that has to do with Gabriel's uh, story, but...
1: Well, that's okay. It makes for interesting conversation. Fry, jump in here. You wanted to say something?
2: Yeah, you know, sometimes uh, disparate political views or what seemed to be existed within the same artist. Uh, yeah, Merle an example of that when at the same time that he was writing "Okie from Muskogee" or "The Fighting Side of Me," he was also uh, writing songs uh, out of the Woody Guthrie tradition mm-hmm. about migrant workers in California. He had an album cut uh, about uh, interracial love. You know, he wrote about Christmas time factory layoffs that uh, affected, you know, white working class people. So Merle Haggard also had that identification with people on the margins. You know, and I love seeing that come back around these days again yeah. with uh, like uh, Jason Isbell. I saw Jason not long ago at the Ryman Auditorium and uh his opening act was a singer-songwriter named Peter One, who is an African who had been a, a country star on the Ivory Coast. Wow! And Peter One came to Nashville later, um, not to do country music, but to he just immigrated to the United States and became a, a nurse in a medical care facility, and uh, and then his musical talent was rediscovered and. You know, here's Jason Isbell featuring him as an opening act just to call attention and cross that racial barrier. Mm-hmm. Uh, Old Crow Medicine Show has a new album with a tribute song to D Ford Bailey, a black harmonica player who was literally, in 1925, the first artist to play on the, the Grand Ole Opry as it was named that very night. There's this kind of tradition that um, maybe it's almost like a river flowing underground in country music that people every now and then celebrate uh, and always have. And mm-hmm. I'm glad that that tradition uh, is still alive today as it was in the 80s. So, you know, there's something universal about the character Gabriel, too. I mean, the the music business changes, but that uh, artistic aspiration endures and and all of the heartache and disappointment and joy that all of the, that, that can bring as well. So, yeah, it's a great novel.
1: It is. It is. So, before yeah. I let you go, you mentioned Fry, you mentioned the Ryman, the Grand Ole Opry. Talk about some other major music venues in Nashville from the 80s in particular. I mean, the Ryman's been around for decades and decades, but what were some of the major music venues? in Nashville in the 80s and which ones are still in operation? And and either one of you can jump in here.
2: Um Peter, when did the when did the bluebird come along? Um I'm trying I get that that gets all mm. fuzzy in my mind. I in the 70s a lot of it was the exit in. I saw Guy Clark there and Linda Ronstadt there. Mm-hmm. And,
1: yeah. You know,
2: um, and then before too much longer it was the Bluebird that you went to, but there was also the station Inn and other things. Peter, you live in Nashville. I don't. Tell me, uh, what's your thought on that?
3: Well, the Bluebird came along in the 80s and uh, developed into this amazing place for singer-songwriters. And it was the place where um, uh, the -the in-the-round concept uh, came to fruition. In-the-round means there's usually three or four songwriters who Sit in a circle in the middle of of the room. Uh, sometimes fropping their beers up on uh, customer tables, mm. <laughs> and 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 they uh, they sing songs one by one and uh, interact with each other. Um, mm-hmm. My f- friend Don Schlitz, who's a, a Hall of Fame uh, songwriter. Uh, and a member of the Grand Ole Opry now uh, was involved in in the beginning of this in the round concept at the Bluebird. Uh, the Station Inn remains the world's finest bluegrass venue. Uh, it's it's a little club. Uh, it's set in an area that's full of high rises and uh, really expensive restaurants. From the outside, it looks like uh, some. A dumpy little place. And then uh, from the inside, it, it seems like heaven itself. All the greats of bluegrass music uh, have played there from the father of bluegrass, Bill Monroe, to the new lights of bluegrass and acoustic music like Molly Tuttle and Sierra Hull. Uh, we mentioned Tim O'Brien earlier. He's played there many, many nights. Station Inn is uh, is probably my favorite club in the, in the world. As Fry mentioned, the Exit in was a place for singer-songwriters and for rock and roll, and sometimes for a, a, a convergence of those things. Uh-huh. Uh, great photos I've seen of Country Music Hall of Fame member Bobby Bear playing with uh, Shel Silverstein, uh, wow. who was an amazing song poet and uh, writer of mm-hmm. uh, children's books and a uh, drawer of Playboy cartoons. Uh, <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's quite a career and, he's had. Was,
3: was Bear's best friend. Uh, and Neil Young. Oh,
1: uh, wow. All yeah. on
3: stage at, at the exit end, which is also where there was a band... Uh, Called Jason and the Scorchers, that was the first uh, country punk band oh. <laughs> of all time, and, and they played there loudly and finally. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> it was an amazing group, but the uh, the in is uh, um, major part of the Nashville story. Um, the Ryman, of course, mm-hmm. uh, then there were there were various little clubs where things happened, but. Uh, Gosh, you can still go to the Station Inn or, or the Bluebird and, and hear the best music you'll uh, mm. ever hear on a Tuesday night. Mm-hmm. Or you can go down Gallatin Road in East Nashville and get to uh, American Legion Hall 182 and uh, <laughs> and, and see uh, genuinely great uh, country music or D's Country Cocktail Lounge, you can see John Byrd on a, on a Wednesday night and it'll, it'll blow your mind. In Gabriel's story, it, Gabriel had trouble kind of finding the, the balance between the music that was in his head and came out through his hands um, and, and was in his heart
1: mm-hmm. uh,
3: and the music that would be popular and money-making there are people who are in Nashville now who have found the balance between those things and uh, are doing so in, in great ways.
1: Yeah. Well, for the episode of Rock is Lit that featured Susie Quattro, I had Catherine Turman on to talk about Susie's place in rock history. And Catherine is a music journalist and producer for Alice Cooper's syndicated radio show Nights with Alice Cooper. Anyway, I asked her why Susie isn't in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame yet, and she talked about how political the selection process is and how artists need advocates promoting them. Peter, is is that the same situation with the Country Music Hall of Fame?
3: The Country Music Hall of Fame does not nominate or elect people into the Country Music Hall of Fame. That's done through the Country Music Association, the voting okay. members uh, thereof. and i I believe it's actually one of the last true things. I don't believe it to be very political. Certainly there are people who I feel like ought to be in there, who are not. But gosh, this year Jerry Lee Lewis, who' has is, is, uh, burned more bridges than uh, <laughs> than exist in some states, yeah uh, <laughs> was elected to be a member of the Country Music Hall of Fame. Mm. It is a very exclusive hall of Fame. There tend to be three new members each year. It's a little different than the than the rock and roll hall of Fame and our induction ceremony is uh it's called the medallion ceremony and it's not televised it's not ticketed we, we aren't charging anybody for access. It's essentially a family reunion. And the, and there does exist a country music family. Hmm. Um, it's a wonderful thing to behold.
1: That was fabulous. You both added so much to this episode. So I'm going to grab a screenshot, if you don't mind. Give me your best pose here,
3: boy. I'm not dressed for it. <laughs>
1: you're fine. All right, one, two, three. It looks good. It's a keeper. So before right. I let you go, what I ask people to do is just say their name. This is Fry Gilliard, and you're listening to Rock Is Lit. And Peter, I'll do that with you as well. So I'll start with you, Fry.
2: This is Fry Gilliard, and you are listening to Rock Is Lit.
1: Peter.
3: This is Peter Cooper, and you're listening to Rock Is Lit. Lovely. Christy, can I say something about Fry for a moment? A lot of my interest and ultimately devotion to country music came about when I was a student at uh, at Wofford College in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and I came across a book called Watermelon Wine that Fry mm-hmm. wrote um, about country music in the 1970s. And it included um, just wonderful portraits of people, uh, including uh, Tom T. Hall and Guy Clark, uh, Towns Van Zandt. uh, And Fry uh, just finds the humanity in this music and and in lots of other things in in ways that uh, the rest of us uh, struggle to uh so i, I just i, I cannot uh, recommend that book more highly and um fry is a, a absolute hero of american
2: literature so
1: all right this was fantastic thank you so much you really added so much to the episode i appreciate it
2: and peter the other thing check out uh christie's novel searching for jimmy page <laughs> they uh it's a fabulous read about rock and roll but also coming of age and so as long as we're admiring each other here it's a uh, it's really a great book too
3: thank so, you
1: thank you so much i appreciate I, that i will
2: uh I, I will
3: read that just just as soon as i'm finished with uh, this bo jackson uh, oh my
2: god uh, oh my <laughs> gosh look at that wow okay <laughs> He's a genuinely interesting dude also. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, he he is good. Thanks, Christy.
1: Thank you both. Thank
2: you, Christy. I'll read the book.
1: All right.
0: Rock is lit.